0: surprises for the Pharisee. And while it's an incredible comfort to the elect, I think this is a verse that's absolutely needed for people who have trust in other things beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take a look at 12 windows, 12 words, as it were, but 12 windows on why this is grace, pure grace first word in this verse hints that there's a reason for this pure grace. It says, for God so loved. Uh, that word for is an indicator that is explaining something concerning the context. Just an indicator, don't yank me out of context. Uh, Dana and Manti's Greek grammar say it's an explanatory for, and so it was intended to explain the things that were confusing to Nicodemus in the previous verses. Now, this is... Uh, uh, This is a a, a reason of four that has been violated by many expositions of this text. I've seen all kinds of bizarre uh, interpretations that violate the context. For example, uh, there are a number of liberals who have said that this verse clearly teaches the innate goodness of man. Uh, God loves this world. Yes, there's some sins there that need to be dealt with, but basically men are good. Well, that violates the context because Christ has been dealing with the utter unworthiness, sinfulness, and deservingness of punishment that uh, men have. Uh, Bartians, uh, who are neo liberals, Bartians uh, use this to teach that all men will be saved, and yet Christ, in the context, in, 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 uh, very explicitly excludes some people from salvation. I've heard some people say that this um, passage indicates that we must make the first step toward God. And yet, if you look at the context, Christ indicates that we have to be born again before we can make any steps, any baby steps, uh, toward God. Now, one person interpreted John 3.16 as God's work of cooperation. God is building a bridge out over the chasm of hell and he builds it almost all of the way to you, but you have to build the bridge partway out there as well. And so, you know, the average evangelicals would say that we have to supply, we have to supply faith. And five-point Arminians would say we have to supply faith and perseverance. And um, Pharisees would say we have to supply faith, perseverance, and at least a certain measure of good works. And uh, Christ is saying, no, you've got it all backwards. The only reason any person can have any spiritual life whatsoever, the only reason he can even have faith is because God has given him life already. As verse 27 says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That's verse 27. And it's in heaven that he starts his discussion in verse 3. And what I want to do to deal with this for... Uh, which says, don't yank me out of context, just I want to look at the context going from verses 3 through 15 and show how God's discussion of sovereign uh, grace in those passages uh, is explained by uh, this verse here. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, And if you look in the margin, you'll see that the literal Greek is born from above. I think uh, again was a mistranslation in the King James Version. It just carried on over into the New King James. Uh, Everywhere else that the Greek word anothen is used, it's translated from above. And so reading that again, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so the emphasis here is on God's work. A baby is passive in in birth. Uh, And the same is true in spiritual birth. Uh, We don't get born again by believing. We believe because we have been born again. Uh, John 1 verse 13 says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man's will is excluded altogether from the new birth. You have to be given a new will before you can exercise a new will. Uh, And that's devastating to the Pharisee. And Nicodemus stumbles all over himself to avoid that conclusion in verse 4 and says something that just seems patently ridiculous. Do we have to return again to our mother's womb? Um, In verse 5, Christ repeats, you can't work your way into the kingdom. You've got to be born into the kingdom. Verse 6 indicates only the Holy Spirit can produce that new birth. Flesh produces flesh. The spirit alone can produce spiritual birth. Uh, The only thing that the unregenerate man can produce is flesh. And so verse 7, he repeats again, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. There is nothing that man can do or contribute that would make him acceptable to God. In verse 8, Jesus again shows that God's grace is totally sovereign. There's no way we can put God into a box with our works or even with our faith. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so the new birth is given when and where God pleases. Just as you cannot tame and control and direct the wind, you cannot tame and control and direct the Holy Spirit. He causes this one to be born and he bypasses this one. It is sovereign grace is what the illustration there is giving. We cannot control or even know what's going to happen with the wind. But uh, God says that's the way it is with the spirit. Now, uh, Nicodemus is so saturated in Judaism. He says in verse 9, how can these things be? That's not what I've heard. I've heard we can contribute something. And Jesus, in effect, says in the next two verses, I want you to stop listening to the Pharisees and I want you to start listening to me. They've not been to heaven. I have been in heaven. In fact, I presently am in heaven. Is what the majority text there says <coughs> verse 14 destroys the idea that Jewishness can bring any favor because he points to a time in which the whole nation of Israel was in jeopardy of being destroyed there was these snakes all over the place they were slithering up and biting you when you were sitting at the dinner table biting you on the path biting you in bed and it was a terrifying judgment of God people were dying by the thousands and God provided a remedy And that remedy had nothing to do with Israel. After all, it was Jews uh, who were dying. It's not because they were Jewish that they were spared. And uh, the remedy was not because of their good works, because good people were dying right along with bad people. The remedy was provided solely by God, and the only thing people could do to be spared was to look at that brazen serpent that he raised up, and that brazen serpent represented the Lord Jesus Christ who took our sins in his body. And so um, he alone um, was the remedy. Verses 1 through 15, I think, were intended to humble Nicodemus by pointing to sovereign grace. As verse 27 says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And so why does God save men? Well, God's sovereign grace in verses 3 through 14 is explained by God's sovereign love. In verse 16 and I don't think there can be any greater explanation for God's grace the moment we start looking to man for you know what the reasons would be we begin compromising the gospel every compromise of the gospel is because it's man-centered in some way and so the scripture indicates we love him because he first loved us we live because Christ died for us and so the reason for grace is not found in the depraved sinner it's found in God and that's our second point The source of pure grace, verse 16, says, for God so loved. Now, this is amazing, absolutely amazing. We can understand the wrath of God towards sinners, but his love towards sinners? A Pharisee like Nicodemus, he could understand the hatred of God for sinners. He was well-schooled in God's hatred for sinners, especially Gentile sinners. And he had all kinds of scriptures he could appeal to. And those scriptures are true, but if they are yanked out of the context of the rest of the scripture, which also speak of God's love toward us, then we misinterpret them. But here are some of the scriptures that this Pharisee would have appealed to. Psalm 5, verse 5 says, you hate all workers of iniquity. Not just their sin, but he says you hate all workers of iniquity. Proverbs 11, 5 through 7. The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Not just hating the sin, he's hating the sinner as well. And then the next uh, verse goes on to indicate that the sign of that hatred was hell. And hell is a pretty good indication of the hatred of God for sinners. Proverbs 3, verse 32. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. Now, an abomination is something that you, you know, it's detested, it's loathed. It's not loved. You loathe Satan and God loathes Satan sinners in the same way that we loathe Satan, actually probably far more. But anyway, it says, the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 32. Proverbs six sixteen through 19, the Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Deuteronomy twenty-five sixteen. for all who do such things and all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so the real wonder is, how can God love anyone who is a sinner. Uh, We can understand his hatred, but how can he conquer his hatred and have a love uh, for sinners, uh, let alone for a world of sinners? And uh, this is what shows that it's pure grace. His love was not because we loved him so much. It was founded on grace alone. Thirdly, this verse not only shows us the amazing source of love, a holy God, but that this grace was motivated by God's love, God so loved. Now, there is debate among scholars as to whether you should translate that God thus loved that he gave his son or God so loved that he gave his son. And there's good arguments for either translation. To me, it really didn't make any difference because the fact that he gave his son indicates it's the greatest possible love uh, that, that he could have. So either way, it really does amount to the same thing. Uh, And this means that if he gave his son the greatest sacrifice that there could be given, that there could be no greater love that he could pour out on you and me. And so the question comes, if God hates all sinners, how could he love us? We're sinners. What's going on here? Well, the scripture indicates he could love us because he sees us as being in the Son. He loves the Son. He looks at us. He sees Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness uh, given to us. And so uh, even his love is grounded in grace. As God sees sinners from eternity past being elected in the Son, he can love them as intensely as he loves the Son because he sees us as being in the Son. Romans 8.39 says, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where God's love resides. It resides in Christ. And if we are in Christ, God can love us with that great love. And by the way, that's why Ephesians chapter 1 says that we are... Uh, It was in love that he predestined us uh, in the son and 16 times in those few verses in Ephesians chapter one, it mentions in him, in the beloved, in Christ, it's by union with Christ that he could love us. And so even the motive is founded on undeserved grace. Love not only motivates his grace to us, but grace makes his love possible to us. And then you you might say, now, wait a shake, Phil. Um, This isn't talking about love for the elect. This is talking about love for the world. You're not saying that the world is going to be saved, are you? Well, actually, that's exactly what verse 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's intention is nothing less than the salvation of the world. Now, this is where Bartians get messed up. They see the grammar in the Greek and they say, You know, all for whom God set the sun will be saved, and it's the world, and so they make the same mistake that the Arminians do, and they fail to define the word world properly, and they take the word world away from the word belief. Now, there is nine different definitions of the word world in the Greek. There's even more in the English uh, dictionary, and... um, Uh, So anyway, uh, this is where Barthians uh, go off. They say that every man, woman, and child in history, from Adam to the end of history, is going to be saved. And yet the context indicates that can't be true, because God says there are going to be some people who will be lost. So what's going on here? Well, whichever view of world that you take, you have to hold that that world is going to be saved. Uh, Here's some clues. Verse 18 says, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes in him is not condemned. So it takes belief before condemnation can be removed. He goes on, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so it's obvious that there is condemnation anywhere where there is unbelief. And the only way that the world will not be condemned is if it is a believing world. Now, <clears throat> if God hates sinners and if all believe unbelievers are in hell then how can the world be saved? Well, the answer is, and I I should have put it in your outlines, I've got the nine different definitions of the word world here. And there are three or four that could fit the context rather well. Uh, For example, Romans 11.15 uses the term world to mean Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And this would be an incredible answer to uh, the Pharisee who thought only Jews were going to be saved. And he said, no, God's going to be saving Gentiles as well. There are many Reformed people who take that definition. Uh, there is a definition that talks about planet Earth. Another one that talks about the universe, which Romans 8 says has to enter into redemption. But it could be the eschatological world uh, as well. And whichever one you take, it really doesn't um, uh, change the, the basic meaning that it's still an unworthy recipient of God's love, and that's the reason it it, it chooses that term. Now, that phrase also points to the power of God's grace. Now, think of it this way. God did not give up on the world that was lost by by Adam. Instead, he determined to save the world that was lost by Adam. 2 Corinthians 9.18 speaks of the reconciliation of the world to Christ, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Uh, The world is not going to go to hell if they don't have their trespasses imputed to them. And if God has reconciled the world to himself, they're not going to go to hell. It's a saved world, right? Then the next verse gives the means of that world being reconciled to God and is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so the world that God is reconciling to himself is not yet reconciled. They're preaching the gospel so that it will be reconciled, right? Uh, John 3.16 talks in exactly the same way. It speaks of his saving love to a world, but the only way that that world will be reconciled is through faith, through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's coming a time, as I have preached a number of times in the past, where the world will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord As the waters cover the ocean beds, God did not abandon the world and save only a few. He's going to have a saved world and he's going to cast out the sinners. And so there's an incredible power of God's grace that is hinted at in that phrase. Now, some people say, well, now, wait a shake. Doesn't the scripture say that there are few that are uh, being saved? Well, yes, Matthew chapter 7 verse 14 says, um, narrow is the gate, straight is the way that leads to life, and there are few who are entering thereby. He uses the present tense, and in Christ's day, there were hardly any believers, very few believers. But in the next chapter, using the future tense, he says, There will be many who will come from the east and from the west and will sit down with Abraham in my kingdom. And so, fewness goes to manyness. Uh, and <clears throat> the uh, remnant theology goes to fullness theology in the New Testament. And God's intention is indeed to have a saved world. And so that phrase speaks of the unworthiness of the objects of grace. It speaks of the incredible power of God's grace, that it's going to take on the world. And thirdly, it speaks of the progress and the victory of his grace. Romans 4.13 tells us that the promise to Abraham was not just Canaan. Here's what it says the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Abraham was given the world, heir of the world. God so loved the world, okay? And thus 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The world is yours, why? Because he is determined to save this world. And there are many scriptures like this which point not to Arminianism, but which point to post-millennialism, point to the victory of Christ's grace, that his intention was not to lose what, uh, or to regain back. His intention was to regain back what Adam lost. And so the unbelievers in Acts are complaining. They are turning the world upside down. Acts begins with just a few believers, 120 in the upper room. And then it talks about many And then it goes to multitudes. And then it goes to myriads who are being saved. And finally, Paul is in Rome itself, causing Rome to crumble to the gospel as even Caesar's household are are becoming converted to the gospel. That is a hint, by the way, to Daniel chapter 2, when that stone cut without hands, which is the kingdom of God, strikes the Roman image. You know, it's on the feet. It's Rome that's smitten. And it gradually crumbles... And uh, God's conquering grace, marvelous grace, victorious grace, advancing grace. And it's pure grace alone that could achieve this. Point seven is a theological term that I didn't have layman's terms for, monergistic grace. Uh, It comes from the Greek, uh, mono, uh, which means, uh, you know, only one, and ergeo, which means to work. So it's only one who works. Okay? It simply means that grace is a one-way street from God to us. God so loved the world that he gave. Okay? It was his giving that made the difference, not anything that we gave. And especially when we get to the phrase that relates to justification, I think it's important to realize our works contributed nothing. Christ's works made it all. Uh, salvation is a one-way street. It's not salvation by faithfulness. It's salvation by at least not our faithfulness, it's by God's faithfulness, but not by ours. In fact, our salvation is not even founded upon our faith. Otherwise, we'd be in a heap of trouble because Scripture indicates no one can believe apart from His grace. So even the grace that lays hold of His, I mean, even the faith that lays hold of His grace is given to us by grace. It's pure grace. The eighth point is that it was a costly grace. He gave his only begotten son, and it ought to humble us to realize that God's one and only was the one who became flesh and died on our behalf. He gave an incredible sacrifice for us. Without Christ, we could not have been loved. Without Christ, we could not have been saved. Without Christ, we could not have heaven. And so even though it was free to us, it cost the father a great deal. The next phrase that whoever believes is an incredibly wonderful phrase because there are some people who have wondered, am I the elect, you know, am I loved by God? Well, that's not for you to worry about because God says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us. And what has God revealed? God has revealed that he commands everyone to repent and believe the gospel. So if you can repent and believe the gospel, you're elect. Okay, that's the bottom line. And so the invitation is wide and it is free. But we know only those who are worked on by God's grace will be able to repent and believe. And yet this is such a comfort to troubled souls. Whoever believes in John six, Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And I want to especially emphasize the fact it's not just that we can have a confidence in God. God is absolutely confident that we will have everlasting life. Now, you might wonder, how could God have that confidence? Because, you know, maybe I've believed right now, but down the road I might unbelieve. No, God says the very one who has given you faith is a God who will give you persevering faith. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so let me read a couple of scriptures talking about that. John 6:44 says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day." It's only the Father's drawing power that can enable us to come to Jesus, and it's only the Father's drawing power that can ensure every one of those will be raised up. John 6:65, 6, "No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father." Acts 3:16 speaks of the faith which comes through him. <laughs> you know, this this is a very humbling thing. I mean, we can't contribute anything. I mean, that that's something that's mortifying to the flesh, that we are one hundred percent beholden to the Lord. Even our faith is granted through grace. Uh it says in Acts three, verse sixteen, the faith which comes through him, Acts eighteen twenty seven, those who had believed through grace. And to me, this is incredible because, again, it shows it's grace, pure grace, no admixture of our flesh whatsoever. 1 Corinthians 2.14 indicates no one could believe apart from grace. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so it takes God's powerful grace to break down the hard hearts to break through, to open our blind eyes, to take away the veil, and to make us see, as we did not see before. Philippians one twenty nine says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Ephesians one nineteen, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who who toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And so confident is God in in uh the perseverance of our salvation that he gives an absolute dogmatism here whoever and and literally it's uh every believing one will not perish no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him all that the father gives to me will come to me and here comes the assurance to troubled souls and the one who comes to me i will by no means cast out now Next point, John 3.16 also demonstrates a Christ-centered grace. It says, whoever believes in him. Remember the definition of grace, that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Saving faith believes in Christ, not in the church. Saving faith believes in Christ, not in our good works. Saving faith believes in Christ not in our faith. You don't have faith in your faith. You have faith in Christ. It's always got to be looking to him. There is nothing man-centered whatsoever about this verse. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our justification. And then the phrase should not perish speaks next of the contrast to grace or what we deserve when we do not have grace. And that's we deserve to perish. Now, there are many people who teach that no one will perish. Everybody's going to be saved, and yet Scripture is so clear, people will perish. There'd be no need for mercy if there was no hell. There'd be no need for grace if there was no hell. Mercy means God is dropping the punishment that we deserve. Grace means he is giving to us the heaven that we don't deserve. But uh, it is so clear here that without a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. And so I would urge you, I would plead with you, if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust Him. It literally means here, believe into Him. You can't believe into Him. It's a directional thing. If you're believing partly into yourself or partly into the church, it's a one-way faith. You're believing in Christ. And then the last phrase of the verse speaks of the eternality of grace, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say He will have future tense. The Greek here is present tense. In other words, the moment you believe, at that moment, you have everlasting life. And so don't let any person, whether he is reformed or not, say that you will be justified in the future if you are faithful. No, the moment you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are secure for all of eternity, and it will not be taken away from you, or John 3.16 is lying you are going to be held in the grip of God for all of eternity. And through all eternity, we are going to be debtors singing praises to the Lord and thanking him for the incredible salvation that he has given. It all centers on Jesus. Without him, there is no new birth. There is no faith. There is no salvation. There is no heaven. And to Nicodemus, who was trying to work on his salvation, Jesus said, no, stop. You've got to be worked upon. You must be born from above. Jesus alone is the bridge between heaven and hell. And those who are saved by him, give him all of the glory, knowing it is grace, pure grace. Amen. Father God, we thank you, we thank you and bless you for the incredible grace that is found in Jesus Christ, the incredible offer whosoever will may come. Uh, Father, I pray that there would not be any person in this congregation who would not put their trust in you. I pray that you would regenerate hearts, that you would uh, open blind eyes and help them to see the glories of your grace. Father, work in us powerfully by your word and may we live our lives, the rest of our lives, as a P.S. saying, thank you, Lord, for what you have given to us in our justification. We bless you, Father, for our uh, salvation, secure through all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when men, women, and children are secure in God's grace, they are afraid of nothing. As Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. How in the world could that be possible? When you're in the midst of a hurricane and the earthquakes and all of those things. Well, that psalm goes on to say, why? Because we know his grace, we know his presence, we know his power, we live for his glory. And the boldness that God's grace produced in the Reformers was a remarkable thing. It was remarkable even to the Roman Catholics. Many of them commented on the boldness that was there. And uh, we're going to be singing two hymns that speak about that boldness, that security, that confidence that we have in the Lord. The first one is written by Martin Luther a mighty fortress, absolutely essential for uh, uh, Reformation Day. And it was actually inspired by Psalm 46. And it was written at a time, not when he was on top of the clouds. It was written when he was in the pit of despair and when it looked like everything was hopeless. And yet he focused his eyes on Jesus and he realized, if God is with us, who can be against us? Uh, with the Lord, all things are, are possible. And when he wrote that, it sent a reverb all throughout Europe. In fact, uh, Carlyle uh, said that it had the sound and the power of an Alpine avalanche. And I think that he was right. And I want us to sing both of these hymns, just thanking the Lord, praising him for what he has given to us. Let's stand as we sing.